Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Cameron Day. A creative director, writer, and chainsaw enthusiast, Cameron has been crafting ads and shape-shifting brands for over 30 laps around the sun. Using everything he's learned in that time, he's penning a trio of advertising survival guides, including the first in the series and much-loved Chew With Your Mind Open. Cameron's second, Spitting Chicklets, aims to help folks navigate the messy middle of their ad career. If you're after mentorship in the form of curse words, war stories, and a ton of actionable feedback, you can and should pre-order it now. Cameron says, I've worked at big agencies and small ones, and there has never been any question which I prefer. A politician I am not. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Well, thank you, Charles, and I think I'm going to steal Bandwidth of Shite as my next book title. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was, I I like the dead one, so I thought it was. You know, I may trade you. I may be willing to make a trade. (laughs) Let's do it, let's do it. Thanks for having me. Not at all, Cameron. Well, we've got our seven quick-fire questions, so for the avoidance of any doubt, I'm going to start with big agencies or small ones? Small. Writing or thinking? Thinking. Luck or tenacity? Oh, tenacity all the way. Lose like a champ or win like a jerk? Oh, lose like a champ. Right, three more. Higher slow or fire fast? Oh, fire fast, absolutely. Right, curveball now. Hey Whipple or Junior? Oh, that's like asking me which one of my children I love more. Uh, If you haven't read read both of those, don't even bother reading mine because you haven't read the right books yet. Okay, (laughs) good answer. Right, last one then. Tinkering with classic cars, but that should be trucks now, I think, or cutting down trees with a chainsaw. Uh, Probably tinkering with classic cars because I will invariably cut off a finger one of these days with my chainsaw. (laughs) Amazing. Well, you sailed through those. Uh, Cameron, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Well, I, I noticed that you actually served me some softballs in those seven questions because you went right right at things that I've written about in, in the books. So I can tell this is going to be fun. <laughs> Good stuff. So so what we do, so one call to action, we always celebrate weird and wonderful ways that guests have ended up in the career that they're in now. So your father was Guy Day, as in the day of Chiat Day. And and some would say it was batshit nuts to follow him into Adland. Uh, but, you, but you did. But before we get into that, could you tell our audience what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper advertising job? My first ever job was at Jim Long's mobile gas station. Back in the day when full-serve gas stations existed, and it was my job to run out to the cars and pump them full of gas, check oil and wash windshields. And yeah, this was in Agoura, California. I was in my junior year of high school. And uh, one of the things my 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 dad did that I, I so appreciate him for, but I didn't like at the time was 
I didn't get an allowance. It's like, you want money, you go out there and earn some money. So I took a job at a gas station and, uh, yeah, all kinds of hijinks was involved in that. <laughs> and how long did you do that for, Cameron? Oh, I was probably there for over a year. And it's funny because because I loved old cars, like all my car buddies would come in and visit me at the gas station. and We'd do stupid things like wet down the areas around the pumps and do burnouts. And yeah, I was I was as stupid as they got. You know, <laughs> I'm sitting there leaning against a gas pump, smoking a cigarette. Right? <laughs> I'll I'll paint you a picture. <laughs> oh, classic! And is that is that quite a standard job then in and around you said California? Because in in the UK, that's not really a kind of it's not, it's not one of those jobs you get. Well, I would say certainly back back then because there really wasn't such a thing as self serve gas stations unless you were really a cheap bastard. Most people would rather pay somebody to pump their gas than put their own gas in their cars. Whereas today, I think it's just a given that you pump your own gas. So, uh, no, this, this is one of those things uh, where you, you'd pull in, you'd check the oil. Sometimes if you got a pain in the ass customer, they'd ask you to check the air in their tires. No, funny, funny memories. But I think, I think the thing my dad did that was so right was he really started me down the path of understanding that I was going to work for it if I wanted to have money. There, there, was, no, there was no silver spoon. Uh, and in retrospect, I thank him for it. There aren't days when I don't wish I was Jay Shiat's son on some level. <laughs> but uh, he was really, really good about it. I grew up with a brother and sister. We never wanted for anything, but things really weren't handed to us on a platter as they were for many of my little friends, which caused some interesting conversations with my dad when I was a young man. And, and so then whilst you were doing that, were you studying? Did you have your eyes set on a particular career? Was, it, was your dad even influential in, in, in kind of getting you into the, the ad industry or at least attracting you to the ad industry? Well, it's a, it's a funny thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't think my dad ever thought I should go into advertising. And he never really pushed very hard. Uh, like if I look at my parents, I'd say dad worked his tail off and mom was kind of this free spirit, right? So I had more access to the free spirited side of the of the parent tree. Uh, even though they were both together and, and we were raised under the same roof, I really didn't get to know my dad until one day I showed him a piece of writing I did. And he said, you know, you might want to think about going into marketing. But I certainly wasn't raised to be an ad guy. Once in a while, I'll meet somebody and they'll say, well, of course you went into advertising. Look who your dad was. But he never he never sat down with me as a kid and said, I want to talk, talk to you about who your dad is, right? That he, he, he was shy and um, he just didn't live for the spotlight. And I think he probably had this, the, the perfect partner in Jay Shiat because Jay loved the attention, right? So if you were to ask me the difference between Jay and my dad, I'd say my dad was fiercely interested in the work, but really not as interested in the finances or the notoriety. Whereas Jay was famously known for saying, how big can we get before we get bad? And I'll be damned if he didn't get plenty big and, and, may, and may have found out the answer in several cases, right? Yeah, perhaps. It, it, it's, I would say my dad never wanted to know that answer. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine there was balance then because of the, the 
being the two they were, perhaps. Yeah, well, could be. And so then, so then, so how did you end up in advertising? And did you did you go in a different direction first, perhaps, and then and then move over into Adland? I was working. I was working in restaurants, and I remember my dad saying, "You know, you, you're probably going to want to figure out what you really want to do, so you don't end up ten years from now going, why am I managing a pizza restaurant?'" I mean, seriously, I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not being facetious. This is really the conversation we had. And I got involved with a, oh, this is such a crazy story. I was working with a guy who used to jump motorcycles over large objects. And his name was Daring Dave Desco. And one time he told me as we were on break at the coffee shop where I worked, well, you know, the one thing I've been wanting to do and I've never seen it done is I want to jump my motorcycle over two helicopters with their blades spinning. And this is pre-Nitro Circus. This is 30 years, this 35 years ago. I said, well, that's crazy, but where would you do it? And he said, I, I have no idea where to do it. And I go, well, I might be, be willing to help you because I wanted to see him do it. Right. Yeah, yeah, I want to see. So we started talking to some nonprofits in San Fernando Valley, and we found a recovery center that was at least initially willing to sponsor the event. And I did a write-up where I basically wrote this story about daring Dave Desco and what he was going to do, and when my dad read it he was like holy crap you should you should be selling things so i go well what do i make of that he goes well why don't you think about going to a couple of classes at ad center in la and what what tends to happen when i tell this story is people automatically go oh art center and i want to make the distinction no it was advertising center it was a trade school and it was owned by ad week at the time so I went and took a class and I actually enjoyed the heck out of it. But to my dad's credit, he never really framed up for me who Shiat Day was other than an ad agency. And at the time, they were prop they were this was right before the, the Apple 1984 spot, right? So they were cracking some really good work. And then in the time when I started, I think he thought to himself, well, I'm not going to tell Cam that because it's probably going to frighten him into trying to do the same thing, right? So I would get in these ad classes and then people would find out that I was the the son of Guy Day and all of a sudden the whole subject of the class would become shy at day and how great they were. And I would walk out of the class going, they're not doing that for my benefit, are they? Because... Uh, and then I remember one day I called my dad and and uh, I said, is there something you haven't told me about Shia Day? And he said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, I didn't know you were such a good agency. And he goes, well, yeah, we're a pretty good agency. And he kind of told me and I was like, oh, holy crap. <laughs> but I had started taking the classes and I was enjoying it. So I thought, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to follow this through and see where it takes me. And and I just enjoyed the hell out of it. But I realized quite quickly that I enjoyed the hell out of being Cameron Day, not Son of Guy Day. So I had a I had a running joke when people would say to me, "I I heard your your Guy Day son." I said, "Well, I made the mistake of telling a few people that I probably shouldn't have." 
and and I would I would say it as if I wasn't Guy Day and that I was trying to leverage the fact that I was even though I wasn't. So for years, I think I had a lot of people who had heard, yeah, he's not really Guy Day's son. He made that up so he could get interviews. Yeah, <laughs> which, which let's face it, wouldn't have been a bad idea. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'll tell you what. Having a, a last name that's recognizable does make doors fly open, but they fly closed just as quickly if you're not there with the right answers. <laughs> this, this, is, this isn't really a fair parallel at all to even try and force, but my brother and my, my dad uh, played rugby internationally, and my brother, my older brother Gareth, was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant rugby player. And so when I joined the school he was at, they just assumed that by token of being an Edwards, I'd be a good rugby player. And they oh, boy. The hard way. But they've called it wrong. So there you go. No, I truly believe I'm the third best writer in my family. Most people you talk to are, are the second best writer on the West Coast. I, I'm the third <laughs> best writer in my family. Yeah. So I think I have a brother who's a writer and just a very good, natural, gifted writer. And my father was was a writer, even though a lot of people thought he was the account side of Shiat Day. Both he and Jay were both writers, but they also did the client contact. And back in the day, the, there was a name for that job role. Have you ever heard the term copy contact? No, no, I haven't. Well, it's funny because I never hear it either. But both Jay and my dad were copy contact at their own agencies. And what that meant is you were the client contact and you were the person responsible for writing the copy. And, and, and if you think about it, that kind of predates the whole putting a team in a room thing that DDB uh, gets so much credit for. Think about the front end of that. No, you'd go do the meeting with the client, then driving back to the office, you'd be thinking about, okay, how can I spin this into an ad? And then you'd get back to the office, you'd write an ad and you'd hand it to the graphics department. As, as near as I can figure, that's the way most agencies functioned, and certainly a lot of small ones. So, yeah, my dad was a writer, and I think when he looked at my skill set, he was, I think he realized, okay, Cam has, Cam has some diplomatic strengths that his brother doesn't have. And I think he's also realized that I was willing to listen. I, I, I'm coachable, put it that way. And I'm not a bad writer, but it's something I've had to work at to get really comfortable doing. And I'd much rather do a podcast or tell a story than sit down and write a story. Although you do write every day, am I right? I do. And, and I have to. And I have a friend who's a very good author. And she once said to me, if I, if I don't write for a week, I see the difference. If I don't write for two weeks, my agent sees the difference. Really? It's very funny because I, I happen to think that it's a skill to where you need to do the exercise every day or it can atrophy. And the other thing is I get up ridiculously early, so there's not a whole lot to do other than enjoy the silence and try to put some thinking down. Yeah, yeah, that sounds ace. Well, I, I, I can't help but think your route into the agency world was, was very healthy in as much as you weren't trying to chase or prove yourself to someone who was a known name within the industry. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an it, it's an interesting thing once you do realize you're following somebody into a business where you're not likely. I, I always knew, hey, it's not likely I'm going to do a, a TV spot that outshines 1984, right? 
So I go, okay, so what if I'm a guy who knows how to hit triples as well as anybody in the business? <laughs> and we let the world figure out what the home runs are. And I think I always had this mentality that if I just, ex if I try to, if I try to do better work on every brand I touch, whether it's a shitty brand or a good one, that's probably not a bad way of, of framing it up. And I know that when I've been at the creative helm of agencies, I've tried to hire people who I felt were better than me and then was never afraid to pull them aside and say, look, I'm going to be honest with you here. I don't think I could write this better than you have, but I don't think you've written it as well as you can. So will you take one more run at it? And, and it's never failed to work because I'm not challenging them saying I can do better than you. I'm saying you can do better than you. Uh, and, and, you know, they go, oh, well, when you put it that way, yeah, I'll go work on it for another 15 minutes. And then they always bring me back something I was happy with. I never once had to sit down and go, fine, I'll do it. That's really smart. I love that. Well, and I think th there's so many egos flying around in the building. And, you know, you don't know whether somebody was learned to swim by being thrown off of a boat. So I just think you run into some really tough head cases. And if you learn to be diplomatic, at least if they throw shit back at you, you know that, that it's not something you're, it's not something you're causing. I mean, I've worked, I've worked for some really, really despicable human beings, but I've also had them support my work and sell the best thing on the table and been on the winning side of that. Not that I enjoyed working for them, but some of the best work I've done was because they were willing to go to the client and and really duke it out over an idea. So I think oftentimes the most difficult people are also the most valuable people because they don't care. They, they don't care who they piss off. If they're convinced they're right, they will go down swinging. And if they're holding your work at the time, that can only benefit you. And you don't have to be the asshole. So just so before I want to talk about the books, um, but before we do, just to kind of take us through the next stages of your career. So we've covered the start and then obviously the quote I used and also the first quick fire I asked you about big, big agencies or small ones. You've obviously had experience with both. And, and so what did that look like? Did, was it something where you did start maybe at a small independent, as is you know common, I suppose, certainly in the UK, and then moved to a network? I started at a small agency, and I don't even name them by name in my first book because I shouldn't have taken the job. And I was interviewed by a guy who owned an agency, and he said, hey, one of the things that makes our agency pretty damn special is we don't have an executive creative director which means the, the creatives that I hire get more at-bats and get more work for their books. And I actually at the time thought that was a good thing. And maybe some of that is the cockiness of coming into the business with a book that, you know, you've spent two years working on, on uh, a dozen and a half ads. They better be pretty good ones, right? So I, I took that job and there was no creative director and I thought, oh, that's going to be a good thing. And then I realized... Uh, after within a year, oh my God, this guy's an idiot. So I, I, I really like the energy of a small agency and I love the feeling when you're in a building where every chair counts. And the dynamic that I love about small agencies is, is I think it forces you to be good and smart at a lot of things, not just the narrow window you're hired, the, 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 the job definition you're hired into. 
So I think being at small agencies has made me a better planner, has made me a better account person, has made me uh, a more diplomatic presenter. And I think big agencies, like I'll give you an example without naming names. I worked with an incredibly talented guy in Austin, helmed a department, and he wasn't good at presenting. And the partners said to me, well, he's so good, we just don't ask him to present. And, and he kind of gets a buy. And I thought, well, how is that helping him? So I think in small agencies, in small agencies, you can't hide from work successfully. And if you're politicking, I think it becomes much more obvious. Whereas at big agencies, you can be a really schmo, uh, just you can be purely political and sur survive quite nicely without really doing anything to advance the work. If you're shrewd. And, and there are some people, unfortunately, the talent they've been given is the talent to fool people into thinking they're valuable when really they're not. So I guess that and also your experience, you mentioned working with despicable people and I suppose even your way in. Um, and I suppose to a point having your father as a mentor of sorts, albeit maybe not as soon as some people might assume, is, is, is that what led you... Is that, was that why you decided to write a series of survival guides to kind of mentor people? Oh, yes. When, when my dad passed away, was this 11 or 12 years ago, there was a Shiat Day website where people were posting remembrances, right? And I was reading through them, and some, the gist of so many of them were talking about what my father did to mentor people, right? And it dawned on me, you know, isn't it ironic that because of who he was and and how he chose to 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 go through life, he never stood in the spotlight. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to figure out a way where you could put him in the spotlight in a way he probably wouldn't object, objected to, but he doesn't have a choice anymore. So I thought, I want the world to know who my dad was, and I want them to know how much great information he gave me, because my secret weapon going into the business is I had a father who knew exactly what I was getting into. And most people who go into advertising, their parents don't, they don't, they don't know a damn thing about what their child is doing for a career. So they're likely to say, well, listen, the minute you're out of college, first interview you get where somebody's willing to hire you, you take that job and you pay off your student loan and, and you grind. And I think that's the worst advice you could ever give somebody first getting into the business. It's, even if the economy is tough, I've, I've known people where I've encouraged them to keep their barista job until the right job opening happened, and then they end up getting hired at a mother or a droga. Or if, if your first job out of the gate is a great agency, you're just setting yourself up, in my mind, for having a great head start. You're, you're getting to work with smart people. You're getting to work probably on better accounts. And I think it's worth, it's worth being paid less for. It's worth having to move to an area of the country you maybe don't want to be. But my God, there's no better. I would think there's no better way of starting than really seeing what a good agency looks like and, and how many people have to, get, have to get the math right for it to be that way. And that's not the, the kind of agency I started at because I was in such a hurry to get started and so wanted to prove myself um, 
that I took a job at an agency without a creative director. And the good news is I managed to do some work I was really proud of, but uh, my boss was a knucklehead and I realized, man, I'm never going to, I'm ne never going to grow the right way until I go find a creative director who's going to at least help steer me. And the other thing is I could easily have been steered into a lifestyle that had me working every night and going to happy hours and getting my drunk on as I do my job. If it weren't for my dad going, don't fall into that trap. Don't be that stupid person. If you want to, if, if you want to have a life beyond advertising, then try to be disciplined and, and if you can, see if you can get up early and get to work on time and do your thinking in the morning. And all of that stuff just formulated into the person I am now to where uh, I've never been one to go to the happy hours, to sit around and, and uh, gossip about the people in the building. And there's just not much good that happens in my mind. When you do that versus, no, I can go home, I can have dinner with my wife, I can enjoy her company, and then I can get up early the next morning and think for a couple of hours before I go to the office and walk in with ideas. So that's very much the way I used to do things. And I think it would mystify people when they'd see me wander out of the building at 6 p.m. and go, where the fuck is he going? And it's like, well, you know, since you asked, you know, that coffee machine in the in the in the kitchen that magically serves free coffee to everybody. Who do you think turned it on this morning? <laughs> and if you've got a problem with my work hours, you can go talk to the to management. I'm I'm not going to sit here all night because I fucked around all day. I worked all day. And I think that 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 was really a shift. And I think it had a lot of creative directors who thought, well, who do I think I am? Or or that guy thinks he can work 50-hour weeks. What's the deal? And the deal is if you're disciplined about it, there's no reason why you can't work 50-hour weeks. It's, um, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? We, we spoke to, we had Amy Ferguson on recently who um, works with Rob Schwartz, who I'm sure you're familiar with at TBWA. I'm a big fan of Rob uh, Schwartz. Oh, indeed, as, as am I. Um, and Amy was the creative director. She may even be CCO. So apologies if I got that wrong, Amy. She worked on the recent Mountain Dew ads, which we thought were brilliant, it, it, with, with another day, Charlie Day. And she was talking about the work-life balance and how that even... Even today, there seems to be a. It seems to be more difficult than it should be for people to leave on time and actually find that balance, which it sounds like that you you managed to implement early on. I think too, Giles. There are so many forms of media that you're expected to solve for. I think the biggest challenge that that creators face now is you have to have a project manager who really has your back, because. It's very easy to walk into a, a, a quote-unquote good agency and they have, they have two-day turnarounds on television. And you're like, well, how the hell could that be? And the only answer I can come up with is the other people in the building aren't really doing their jobs and they aren't protecting the creative long enough to make sure they're coming up with great solves. And I think we've all been in that trap where you're just, you're just, you're just hitting doubles, 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 because nobody gives you time to really solve. And I think you've got to be fast at the stuff that's disposable and take the time you need for the stuff that's really, truly important. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely, completely.
And so the the whole thing, when I came into the business, it's like, you know, everything's an opportunity and never give up on anything. Well, that's all fine when you're only solving for outdoor print, television, and radio. But now there are so many ways you're expected to solve, and so many of them are are something that pops up yesterday, it goes away tomorrow, and it needs to be replaced by something. That's a different kind of creativity. So oftentimes now, if somebody says, yeah, I need, I need social posts, I will sit down and I will grind out 50 ideas in half a day and go, okay, that's going to be my job. And then I'm going to say, what, how can I add value to what I've been asked to do? And maybe show them some stuff they didn't ask for that they might be better off doing, right? So I think as a writer, you, you've got to realize, man, with social media, you better be quick and you better be willing to lay down triples. Now, I'm sorry about the sports analogy. Sometimes I, I female creatives stare at me and go, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to imply that, that women don't understand sports, but in many cases, it's like, would you run that by me again with, without the triple uh, thing? And I go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Time, weather, and we interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, at giles at gasp.agency. Only the other day, some pod listening companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand identity. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. Uh, which was driving a forklift truck at the Ribena factory in Kelford, Gloucestershire. Ah, Call to Action, episode 11, with the one and only Rory Sutherland. Not what we were looking for, but hang on a minute. <laughs> ah, there we go. Well, there might be something else, actually, I could do with you translating for my benefit, or, or, or in fact, for, for us Brits, which, I, which I'll, I'll come on to now. But just quickly, so, so Luke Sullivan, he, so he recommended, so Mr Whipple himself, he recommended your first of the trilogy of the advertising survival guide called chew with your mind open so we pushed that and promoted that on that show which was earlier in the year but the the question i was going to ask about or at least ask you to translate into british is the sequel spitting chiclets that's entirely new on me what's that mean um spitting chiclets is uh, well first off i have a i had a partner i worked with an art director who was one of the funniest people i ever met and he used to always use that terminology, spit and chiclets. It's after you've got hit in the teeth and you spit your teeth into your hand. But it really, <laughs> it really comes from hockey. It's a terminology that when you get high sticked and take a stick to the teeth, it's, it's why most hockey players do not have good teeth unless they have dentures. So, but it began, I didn't even know it was a hockey thing until uh, I started thinking about that funny expression my friend Richard used to use and how much I I love having kind of a blind headline uh, on the book title because uh, I, th I think one of the greatest gifts you have is you can call your book anything you want. I mean, now I'm realizing, well, it's really the Advertising Survival Guide Phase 2, right? But I'm going to call it Spit and Chicklets because it leans into a gum thing, which my first book does. And it's also just odd. I think if I walked into a bookstore, I might look at that and go, what the hell is it? And uh, I'm already ahead of three quarters of the books if that's how people react to it. And I think, I, and I think uh, on another level, if you go into this business, you will invariably 
hit that moment where you're spitting teeth into your hand. Yeah, 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 okay. So it does make sense. It does make sense. So as we record this, so this this episode, so today, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, is actually the 29th of July. So this book is out imminently. How does it differ from Chew With Your Mind Open? Is it literally that stage of your career that it's moving on to, that messy middle? The, the, the thought I had for the trilogy was there are things you need to know in the beginning that aren't as important in the middle or the end. And certainly there are things as you start to move towards management. Uh, one of the analogies I, I love to use is when you start in advertising, you're a competitor. You're competing against everybody for the idea. And then one day they give you a title and all of a sudden you have to be the world's greatest parent and sit on the sidelines and watch everybody else win, right? So uh, I've oftentimes looked and said, you know, some of the best creatives I've ever worked with were terrible creative directors. And if you ask me the why of it, it's because they really weren't good at sharing their toys or sharing their insights. They would hold things inside and save it for when they worked on it, or, or they would think, all right, nobody's coming up any, with anything good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hop on my horse and ride in here and be the hero. I, I always heard stories about Hal Ronnie where he would, he would do that. He would have everybody in the agency working on something, uh, and then he would write the answer in the car on his way to the client. Um, now, how Ronnie was brilliant, no question about it, but I've been in ad agencies where I've lost to my boss so many times. It's like, well, it seems like all he's done is hung back, looked at everybody else's thinking, and then spins his own yarn in the in the last few minutes and his work goes forward and everything else stays back. I think that's frighteningly common in this business. Uh, it is on big things. And then if you look at little things, it's like those are the same people who don't want to write the social posts. So they treat their creative department like, oh, no, you're just going to do all the shite and I'm going to continue to do all the big stuff. And, and that's just not not a good strategy for growing people or 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 winning fans. Yeah, no, I've, I've certainly experienced that as well. There's, there's a couple of things I want to I touch on because you've been kind enough to share the, um, the contents of the book. Chapter 15, you're only as good as your most recent disaster. So only because I'm a big fan of normalizing failure, which is also something you touch on in the book, which was really good to see. Can you tell us a story about any disasters you've had? <laughs> oh God, where do I start? What would, okay, well, this, this is just kind of a funny one. I'll tell you about a disaster I had after the agency uh, pitched Land Rover. We were in Bethesda, Maryland. There was a group of about, uh, I would say, 15 of us who went to the pitch. Uh, we, we brought along this uh, AV system. You, you know, something I should tell you about Roy Spence, who is the S in GSD&M, is Roy was really good at going, you know, we're a little agency in Austin, Texas, and we're not supposed to win this, and we're going to blow minds. We're going to walk in. He, he really kind of always set the stage like we're, we're the underdogs. And I've always been very compelled by anyone who said we're the underdogs, because when you're not supposed to win, that's when winning's the most fun, right? So when we went to Maryland, Roy, Roy got this AV system that was just incredible. And his idea was to walk into that room and, and to out-present anybody else in the room. So 
I remember getting there. We had 45 minutes in the room before the meeting started. They spent 40 minutes getting all the AV system plugged in. We had all rehearsed our presentation, so everybody knew their marks. Um, five minutes before the meeting started, the AV system isn't working yet, so we're starting to sweat it. And then right before the meeting starts, boom, everything's hooked up. So we go, okay. We start into the presentation. Roy is basically standing in front of the whole group, and in the room is a, a group of dealers from around the country because uh, Land Rover actually asked members of their dealer council to sit in on a pitch, and I think they rightly felt that the decision wasn't just going to be theirs. They wanted their dealers to feel like they hired the right agency too. So the, the whole thing starts out, and if you knew anything about Roy Spence at the time, he was extremely charismatic. I think in many ways he was like Jay Shiat, right? And he loved the spotlight. So he gets up in the room, and he starts into the whole setup for the campaign, and David and I, my partner, were going to show the creative. So we're sitting there watching Roy, and I'm thinking to myself, God, he's really on. Don't drop the ball when, when, when he passes it to you. And right before he's supposed to pass the ball to David and I, the lights in the office blink and you go, was that a power surge? And then all of a sudden, boom, the power goes out. <laughs> and you're thinking, this is like every bad telecom commercial I've ever seen where we're 10 yeah. minutes into the pitch and the power goes out and it doesn't come back on, right? So you can kind of hear this audible gasp in the room and, and I, I think all of us on the agency side are like, oh, fuck, this is not good. Roy Spence, in all of his wisdom, in the dark, lets this long pause go, and then he says, okay, so two monkeys walk into a room. And then he stops, just like I did. And he just leaves the pause hanging there. And then the dealer guys who are in the room start to chuckle. And then everybody starts to chuckle. And then before you know it, the whole room is laughing out loud in the dark. And then, boom, the power comes back on. And the minute the power gets comes back on, Roy made no effort to finish the joke. He said, and now David and Cameron will take you through the creative. <laughs> and I remember before ever getting out of my chair, I thought to myself, oh, my God, we just won the account. Like everybody in the room I, I had goosebumps. It's like. This guy just turned a disaster into one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in a pitch, and it had nothing to do with the creative. So we take them through the creative. We leave the, uh, the meeting. We get a phone call because we had gone last. And before we had left Bethesda, Maryland, Land Rover said, you won the business. Don't tell anybody until we've talked to the other two agencies. So I haven't gotten... I haven't gotten to the embarrassing part yet. Okay, go on. Roy decides, well, I'm going to take everybody out and we're going to celebrate this big victory. And one of his famous things is like, we work hard, we play hard. So, okay, Roy invites everybody out. We're all going out for sushi. Uh, they're, they're pouring sake for everyone. I had never eaten sushi in my life and wasn't really interested in eating sushi. But I thought, well, who am I to, to, to be the person who doesn't eat sushi. I'm just going to eat sushi like I love the stuff. And I'm going to drink sake like it's mother's milk. And I'm going to have a good time because we just won the fucking Land Rover account. 
So I proceeded to drink a bunch of sake, eat a bunch of sushi. I suppose it was okay, but I didn't, I didn't relish the experience. And the next morning I woke up with a hangover and it was time to fly back to Austin. So we all get ushered back onto the plane back to Austin and thankfully it's not a full flight. So after, after being locked in a war room together for, for weeks before this pitch, everybody kind of spreads out on the airplane. And I happen to have a whole, a whole aisle of seats. So I sat in the middle seat and, you know, people were just lounging and, and, and having a good time. And then all of a sudden after we've taken off, I feel this surge of pain unlike anything I've ever felt. And I thought, oh, my God, is that appendicitis? And then I realized, oh, it's that goddamn sake and sushi I ate. So I think, all right, order a ginger ale, zen your way through this. It's not like you're in a packed plane. And at one point I realized, I think I, I just think I have to fart in the worst way possible. So I thought, okay, I can get up and go to the, go to the restroom on the plane, but that's very likely going to destroy that restroom for the rest of the day. I've got nobody around me. I'm just going to slip it out right here on the plane. So I have this silent fart, and all of a sudden I realize, oh, my God, I've never smelled such a terrible stench in my life. I'm sitting here stewing in my juices, and then somebody on the plane goes, oh, my God, what's that smell? Is that burning wires? And then somebody yells out, oh, the plane's malfunctioning. And I'm going, oh, my God. And it's like, somebody get the pilot to come back here and investigate this. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not good. So I called the waitress, the stewardess over, and I said, look, I'm sorry. It's not burning wires. It's me. I ate something that wasn't agreeing with me, and that, that smell came from me. And rather than the stewardess, hopefully, having had this happen to her before, she she looks at me like I'm from another planet and goes, oh, that's so disgusting. <laughs> and, and word breaks out on the whole plane that this man's fart is what everybody's smelling. And i got to tell you that I was the guy who farted on the airplane on the way back from the Land Rover pitch. <laughs> and, and I guarantee that like came up on my review at GSDNM. Oh, and in retrospect, I would have let the plane emergency land rather than admit to that. Yeah, yeah that rep. Oh, so that, that, in a way, that uh, that's a little bit of a failure. But so many of the things in my career is like, does this shit only happen to me? <laughs> it's like, it's the funniest thing because I I rarely have anything resembling presentation anxiety, right? But I have huge anxiety about getting to the meeting, not leaving the portfolio in the airport. I always have nightmares about not getting to the meeting on time. I never have nightmares about not being able to pitch the work. I have nightmares about not getting to the pitch. Oh, dear. That story is gold. That story is gold. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. The things that are gold 15 years after they happen, I didn't even... I didn't want to talk about it for 10 years, right? No, no. And the other thing I'll tell you real quickly that's also in book two is Steve Gurisich, who recently passed away, was the G in GSDNM. My first week after I started as David Crawford's writer partner, we were the GCDs on Pennzoil, and we handled all the tertiary 
products like the waxes and the fuel additives. We took an ad to the Pennzoil client, and I think it was the second week I was there, I'd never even met Steve Gurisich. I got called on the carpet with David Crawford because we took a naked lady to the client. Not literally. We had a, an assignment for a gas additive. Um, and we thought, you know, this is targeting people who are gearheads and mechanics, people who put up pinup calendar art on their toolbox. Why don't we do a Playboy centerfold and we'll have the model be naked, but we'll have our product hiding the areas that you can't show. And then on the back where the Playboy centerfolds always had a profile of the Playmate, we wrote a profile of the product. And I thought, wow, for the, for the demographic, which was guys, uh, gearheads, what a great idea. It basically got played back to, you showed a naked lady to the client. And Steve Gurisich, I know from that day forward, never really cared for me because I was the guy who appeared in the building one day, showed a naked lady to his client, you know, and was always pushing work that made people uncomfortable, right? Yeah. So, yeah, the, I would say another failure is I didn't stop long enough to read the room and think about the ramifications of showing a Playboy centerfold concept to a Bible Belt client. I just thought it's a great idea and they need to do it. Yeah, there's often so much context, isn't there, around things that are easy to miss. Well, I've never seen so many churches in my life as I did after moving to Austin, Texas. I was like, holy Christ, you've got to be kidding me. Right, we're going to plug the book at the end, but before we do, I've got a couple of listener questions for you, Cameron. Okay. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. I'm delighted to say we've had a question from Luke Sullivan himself, author of Hey Whipple, Squeeze This. Oh, great. And seeing your title for chapter 10, I think the answer is going to be, uh, I think you'll have an answer. So Luke asks, have you ever been fragged? You know, stabbed in the back by someone you trusted. What did you do? Uh, well, the answer is yes, and I wrote a book. Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's funny because if, you're, if you go into this business and your agenda is to do the best work you possibly can, number one, and everything else is secondary, you're going to get knifed. But I would also tell you that doesn't mean you shouldn't, you shouldn't try to do the best work possible at all junctures because that's what's going to result in the most in the most prolific career and by prolific i don't necessarily mean winning awards i mean solving problems that make clients go you know that's really smart and i, I would say giles because you know when your dad is guy day and they've won all those big awards kind of the pressure's off to be better so i thought all i can really do is be the best possible creative i know how to be and and live with those with the ramifications of that. So I think I tried to think of myself as somebody who always makes the work better, no matter where the start point is. And I know a lot of people who who aspire to work at Nike, and I always ask them, well, is that because you really think you're going to do something as good as Y2K or Frozen Moment or? And then I rattle off ten Nike executions, and they kind of look at me like, well, what are you saying? And what I'm saying is. 
if you're going to go work on Apple, you better be ready to do 1984 or do that do that terrific new spot about the selective focus with the two detectives in the car. That to me is one of the most miraculous product demonstrations I've ever seen. But I think if you aspire to go to a great agency, go to that great agency and do the great work at the great agency. And I would rather do really good work at a bad agency than do boilerplate work at a great agency. Well said. I was talking to a guy called John Evans here, who's the uh, chief marketing officer at at System One. And um, we were talking about, effectively to use your word, solving problems over winning awards. And, and how sad it is that work that works isn't the work that wins often. Well, yeah, I, I think we're, as creatives, we're a, work, uh, we're a room full of guys who want to do things that are violently original, but solving problems isn't always a violently original prospect. Yeah, well said. So, so I, I just think at the end of the day, I probably have as many friends who are ex-clients as I do who are ex-employees. Because my goal was always to impress the crap out of the client with the way we solved the problems rather than walk in and go, this is going to win every award out there. Because most clients don't care about winning awards. They care about they care about the quarterly. They care about not being embarrassed. They care about not being called on the carpet for approving a naked lady ad. It's, it's just, it's really important to, to realize you have to, when you sell a great idea, oftentimes you have to go in there and say, the reason why this will work is because nobody will ever forget seeing it, and that's a good thing. Don't talk about awards. Talk about the fact that people will remember it or, or that it'll, it'll, it'll have their product discussed for free hours and days after the, the, the message runs. By normal people outside of Adland. Right, right. Uh, question two. So this is um, this is Ryan Gray, who's president of Beckett, a TikTok agency. Ah, uh, yes. So Ryan says, Cameron, I promise this question won't be about TikTok. So much has been written about what people should do to be more creative. But I'm curious to ask you, what are things advertisers should stop doing in order to be more creative? For example, I know Sir John Hegarty hates it when employees walk in wearing headphones instead of creatively thinking on the way to work. What do you wish people would do less of to be more creative? I wish people would would self-promote less and be more... Well, I'll tell you this. Oftentimes, the best creatives I've ever hired are the quietest people in the room. And they're the people who reluctantly come to the rapid ideation session you hold, and they don't say anything until the end of the meeting. But boy, when they do say something, it's generally the idea we all end up working on. So I think there's really something to be said for paying attention to the quiet ones. I And I don't consider myself one of them. I can talk all day. But I've had so much success at hiring people who might be socially awkward, they might be shy, they might not be, they may not look creative, Uh, they, they they don't play well with the other cats, but it's like, no, they're not there to do any of that stuff. They're there to make us famous, right? It, I, I'm just a big believer that the work is so much more important than anything else, because the minute the economy shifts, 
you're going to be screwed anyway. Like you're going to lose every account you ever work on. Why not lose it because you did something great that scared people as opposed to you played it safe so the agency could hedge its bets for long enough to go replace their big stupid account with another big stupid account and everybody keeps their jobs. So I think we spend so much time fearing for our jobs. It's like, don't fear for your job, fear for being mediocre. Brilliant. That's a great soundbite. Funnily enough, uh, Cameron, we, Cameron, we spoke to on episode 90 was with a, uh, a Bristolian, Alex Morell, who's a strategy director. And something he said in our recording was that he, he is one of those quiet people in the meeting who doesn't speak to the end and you know speaks rarely and, and, and quietly when he does. And he always saw that as a flaw in himself. And it was only through his career where he's had so many people come up to him and say, Alex, how do you do it? How do you just, you sit there and you listen so intently and then you say one thing and that one thing is great. And it's taken him ages to realize actually what a positive it is, always being so fearful that he was yep, quiet and yep. felt like he needed to be loud. When actually, as you say, the opposite is, is so often true. Well, I've, I've spent a career finding the Alex's and spending as much time as I can with those guys, because anytime I've ever struggled with a brief, I don't sit around in the creative department talking about what a piece of shit the brief is. I go and sit down with the planner and go, hey, we're not really getting anywhere with this. Let's talk about the brief. And oftentimes I'll walk out realizing, oh, support point number four, we can do the whole campaign about that. It's just finding that one actionable insight. And it's it's almost invariably always in the brief. It just didn't get exposed enough, right? Or the client wouldn't sign off on it. So I'm I'm a I'm a huge fan of the quiet ones. It's always a mistake to think that if somebody's quiet, they're not thinking. And I'll, I'll tell you a tip somebody gave me one time. I thought it was brilliant, and I only started using it from the moment I heard the tip on. Person said, if you're in a big meeting and you think you've got something really smart to say, write it down on a piece of paper and wait and look at it for a couple of minutes. And if after a couple of minutes, it still seems like a smart thing to say, say it. I've been in meetings before when I thought I had a smart thing to say, said it, and then regretted saying it. <laughs> but it's so much better the other way around. Nobody remembers that, you know, we weren't even on the subject when you brought up this idea. It's because if you sit and stare at it for long enough, you can really assess, is that really a smart idea? Or, I'm, or am I just repeating what somebody else said or truly blurting out a stink bomb? <laughs> yeah, that's a great tip. That's a great tip. Hey, I wanted, to, I wanted to mention something to you because I sense we're getting towards the end. I, I always have no sense of time when I do these things. I wanted to let you know that Spitting Chicklets is also available on Amazon right now. It's just in its very initial phases and I basically launched it and didn't talk about it because I'm reading through the book to make sure there's no mistakes in it. But I'm happy to report it appears to be, I haven't found any big mistakes yet. I just wanted to mention that it, that it is physically available on Amazon. I'm using July 30th as the official launch date because that was my dad's birthday. Ah, wonderful. And, and I think you mentioned this is going to run on the 29th. Correct. Yes. That, that's my birthday. Ah, oh, perfect. Okay. Well, happy birthday. I sure appreciate it.
So how much more time do we have? We've got our four pertinent poses. So these are four questions that we always ask all of our guests, and then we'll then we'll give a, a proper plug to um to everything. And that starts with number one. What advice would you give to your younger self? Patience. I think I think to my younger self, I'd say stop looking at award books and studying how other people win awards and really think about how you can solve your your client's business problem in the most inventive way possible. Brilliant advice. Uh, number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Jargon. Let, let's circle up. <laughs> I, I think... I don't know why it is that we're in a business that people think if they use the right jargon, they'll be perceived as being smarter. Um, it's it's just so ridiculous. New new paradigms. I mean, it just. I just think we need to get real and we need to learn to communicate in ways that are effective without using jargon. Yes, yes, yes. I would happily banish this too. Uh, number three: Are there, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners. Okay, I'm turning and looking on my bookshelf. Well, you started by asking me about Thomas Kimeny's book, Junior, and Luke Sullivan's book, Whipple. If you haven't read those two books, by all means do it. They're fantastic books. I think Kimeny's book is fascinating because you get to see the beginning of a career. And uh, Thomas actually wrote the foreword for my, uh, for my second book. We've become friends because of Luke Sullivan. Luke Sullivan recently sponsored a series of um, um, videos where we talk about each other's books. <clears throat> so I love Luke Sullivan. He's truly one of the funniest, kindest people you'll ever meet. I think Thomas Kimeny is a fantastic writer. And I, I asked him to write the foreword of my book because, ironically, I think he is in the middle of his career. And I think he's going to have a really long, successful career. And then you've got me. I, I hate to say it, but I'm, I, I can see the finish line. <laughs> I, I'm running a marathon, and all of a sudden I'm going, my God, is that the finish line up there? <laughs> Which is not to say I'm, I'm, I'm retiring, but I think I'm just starting to figure out, okay, how do I take what I know, what I've learned, and and share it with others in a way that makes me happy. And and I think mentorship, mentorship, when you're willing to give back, you get so much back in return. Uh, and anytime I talk to a classroom full of kids, I'm as inspired by advertising as they are by the time I get off the phone, because I realize for all of its flaws and all of its egos and, and, and all of its faults, if you get to where you're good at solving client problems, you can have a long career and you can also have a career where you can walk down the street and not be recognized and still feel like you did something, you know? Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. I did watch that video. I watched it uh, a couple of days ago where you're talking to Thomas and Luke. It's great. In fact, we will link to that video uh, in this episode. So the show notes will have a link. So everyone listening can check that out. I well, it was so much fun. And, and Nancy Vonk and David Baldwin are also national treasures. Uh, David's got a book that I'd also highly recommend called The Belief Economy. Uh, Nancy's got a book called, she has two books. One of them's called Pick Me. I think it has some really good advice for 
creatives going into the business. Um, and then lastly, I want to say that I think there are so many good books on advertising that what I would tell writers is just read. It's not that hard. Uh, there's, there's a book on The Economist advertising called Well-Written and Read. Uh, and that's written by somebody who was uh, an account executive on The Economist and became a very, very good writer. Um, it's one of the most fascinating books because, let's face it, if you're going to talk about a great all-type campaign, there's The Economist, there's the Citibank stuff that people like Greg Hahn were involved with, and then there's the KBC stuff, the yellow, the yellow things that Shiat Day did that my friend Rich Siegel was a creative director on. To me, those are the three best all-type campaigns ever written. And, and I never buy it when somebody says, oh, well, if we don't have money for art, we can't do a good ad. It's like, no, you can paint a picture with words that's a better picture than most ads. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't revel in the idea of doing all type, but I've never been frightened by all type because it gives you an opportunity to paint a picture in somebody's imagination. I managed to get hold of Well Written and Read recently, actually, from a, from a US thrift shop that I got to uh, ship it over. Oh, bro- well, listen, there's also a book on the, on the, um, the Citibank campaign. And it's really hard to find. It's called Live Richly. Yeah. Thoughts on Life and Money. I'm holding a copy in my hand. It was impossible to find. And then I just posted up on LinkedIn that I'm looking for a copy. And a a colleague of mine said, hey, there are two copies at this used bookstore. So I bought them both, kept one and gave one away for a birthday present. Oh, good man. Well, I just think, think the books about advertising are... There are educations within these books to where you don't, to me, you don't have to go to ad school to become a a great advertising talent. You need to understand what it's really about. And to me, what it's really about is solving problems. And oftentimes those problems are the egos clashing with with each other in the workplace. And you have to somehow get past that. It's like you can work for somebody that, that, that you dislike immensely as long as they're about the work, you guys can share great work together. I've done it myself. I've, I've, I've worked with people that I thought were despicable human beings, but they made my work better. So I'd also tell people, if you think you're working for somebody who's awful, think twice because they may be serving you on a level that you don't understand yet. Number four, Cameron, is we, we always dedicate every episode to somebody and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode to someone? I'm going to dedicate this episode to my wife because she is is just an amazing human being and has given me an appreciation for what it means to have a life beyond advertising. And she's traveled like a gypsy all over this country so that I could pursue this career of mine. Um, she's just an amazing human being. And, and I don't think I ever would have written three books if I, if I wasn't married to somebody who tolerated my, uh, my behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and your chainsaw juggling. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, she's got my back. She does a lot of, of, of the, uh, the real hard work and she, 
she's she's just basically an amazing human being and and she has she has very little interest in advertising um and i love her for it amazing can i ask her first name debbie debbie okay wonderful so this this episode is very proudly dedicated to your wife debbie Cameron, thank you so much for giving us all of that. You've given us, um, especially Daring Dave Desco. I love love Daring Dave uh, for giving us links. We'll add links, in fact, obviously, to Junior, to to, uh, Hay Whipple, The Belief Economy, Pick Me, Well Written and Read, Live Richly, which I am going to look for, the videos where you're talking with um, uh, Thomas and Luke and and the other guys. Uh, But how else can people get more... Cameron Day, and how can and should people buy the books? Uh, you can buy the book through Amazon. Uh, the first book is on Amazon, it, and it's uh, it's on in paperback and in uh, Kindle edition. The second book is available in paperback right now, but the Kindle edition is not done yet. And the third book of the series will be launched next year sometime. I want to make sure I don't launch it so close to the second book that I don't give the second book a chance to develop its own legs. But uh, And then I plan on moving into video with a lot of the content that I've done because I never dreamed I'd write an advertising book, right? And then I opened my big mouth and I said, I'm going to write a trilogy. And I thought, what the hell was I doing when I promised that? And and now I am here. I am with a trilogy going. I have ideas for fourth and fifth books. It's it's a funny disease. Like once you do it, and I, I had to get over the fact that that I don't I don't write like Tom Kennedy, and I don't write like uh, like Rich Siegel, and I don't write like 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 any of the greats. I just kind of found my voice that I'm comfortable with, and and I love telling stories. So I have. I don't know, something like 60 stories that I tell in the three books. Uh, I'm going to convert them all over into videos and I think make them available um, that way as well. So so the next year and a half, I think, you know, I'll probably be doing TikTok videos because ironically, I would rather tell a story than write one. All right. That coming from somebody who's written three books, it's time I start telling these stories. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, you should. Wonderful. And, and I also want to plug the fact that Rob Schwartz is going to write the foreword for my third book. Uh, I recently asked him if he would. He said yes. And uh, now I'm, I'm committing him to it by mentioning this on your podcast. Oh, brilliant. Well, Rob listens or at least claims to listen. So, Rob, there you go. I'm a big fan of Rob, as he and everyone who listens to this will know. I think, um, I think George Tannenbaum, when he was on, we, we both agreed we needed more Rob Schwartz in this game. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just to give you a little viewpoint into Rob Schwartz, there are very few creatives I meet who I would say that person has the complete skill set to do anything he wants, and that's Rob Schwartz. And it's funny because I remember Rob Schwartz as Rob Schwartz, the writer, and and a really terrific copywriter, but I don't think a lot of people don't even realize that Rob is and was a great writer in his own right before he really started going up the chain. And then once he started that walk up the chain, it's like Rob alone the world. I, he already does, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a true polymath. But listen, um, Camera, I've loved, I've loved just these few stories you've shared with us today. So I do urge everyone to buy the book. I'm going to certainly buy the book. We'll include links to your website as well and everything else that that we can find to uh, to help give that some make some more noise. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. I've, I've I've loved this chat. Well, thanks for having me, and it was a great chat. Anytime. And finally, thank you to everybody listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the pod. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah!